Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. To me, it's the greatest American story we have in conservation. This is Kimberly Frazier. She works in conservation, so she would know. In 1981, a rediscovery happened outside of Matitsi, Wyoming. A rancher, John Hogg, and his wife, Lucille, heard their dog, Shep, fighting with something in the yard. And they actually thought it was a possible porcupine. So the next morning, John got up and he walked out the back door. And here was this carcass of this animal. But he didn't have any use for it, so he threw it out into the yard and went back in the house and he told his wife, you know, it wasn't a porcupine. It was this kind of weasel-like animal and I threw it down by the, the stream bed. And Lucille, who was curious by nature, got up and decided she wanted to have a look at it. So she went out in the yard and she located it. And she decided that she wanted to have it mounted because it was so unusual looking and put it on their mantelpiece in their home. And so they drove it off to Matitsi, to the taxidermist. Of course, I think it should have been in a velvet lined sack, but he had it in a gunny sack and he threw it on the, on the floor. And LaFrenchy, the taxidermist, didn't say a word, walked in the back. He called Fish and Wildlife Service. He called Wyoming Game and Fish. And he came out and he said to John Hogg, John, I'm going to have to confiscate that. You have an endangered black-footed ferret. If they had done anything different, we really would not have black-footed ferrets today. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Future Perfect, a podcast about effective altruism. I'm Dylan Matthews. It's hard to know how many species we're losing every day. Estimates range from a low of 12 to a high of 200 or so. Whatever the number, it's a problem for ecosystems. And it's a problem for us. Because if we lose enough species, it can affect the animals we eat, the land we grow crops on, the spread of diseases. The list goes on and on. But as we'll see, saving species can be really tricky and eat up a lot of resources. So an effective altruist might ask, should we be trying to save every single species? In a world of increasing extinction, when do we let a species go? Today, we're going to look at the effort to save just one species, the black-footed ferret. We thought they'd be a good test case because they're not a totally critical piece of the ecosystem they live in. They don't do a lot for humanity, or even like us much. They really have a bad boy on the block attitude. So no, they're not friendly to humans, you know. The case for saving these ferrets isn't obvious, but we'll take you through it. To start, the basics. 
Kimberly Fraser is the outreach specialist at the National Black-Footed Ferret Conservation Center in Colorado. She's a big fan of these ferrets, so we asked her to give us an introduction. Black-footed ferrets, you know, they have a black mask, they have a white muzzle, um, coarse black feet, black tip tail. They have the longest canines of any mammal species in North America. And that's um, one reason why they're so successful in killing their prey, the prairie dog. They kill them down in the burrow systems with a throat bite. And they basically hang on until the prairie dogs suffocate. Typically, a ferret moves into an abandoned burrow that those prairie dogs have dug. It has its young, which we call kits, down in the bottom reaches of the burrow systems. And then they feed on the prairie dogs. And, you know, it's kind of like having your grocery store right there in the basement. Until a century or so ago, black-footed ferrets were living the life. And then we got really enthusiastic about destroying their habitat. We call it the three Ps. Plowing of the Great Plains, poisoning, and plague. Let's go through those P's a bit more. Again, P number one is plowing. Between the years of about 1880 and 1920, we plowed up about 98% of the Great Plains. We did it for agriculture, to feed people. And that's also why the U.S. government decided to do P number two, poisoning. Prairie dogs are considered varmints, and so many poisoning campaigns happened. The poisoning didn't just affect the prairie dogs. It also knocked out the ferrets. And then they were hit with the third P, plague. Which is the same plague that, you know, wiped out most of Europe, the bubonic plague. It came to this country in the early 1900s through San Francisco on ships that came from China. And on those ships were rats, and on those rats were fleas. And those fleas carried uh, the plague. In wildlife populations, we call it civatic plague. It's been marching across the country from San Francisco towards the east. And our, our native species really have no immunities for it. By 1979, the last known black-footed ferret was dead. Scientists thought they had gone extinct. Which is why the discovery on John Hogg's farm was so exciting. When it was rediscovered in 1981, it was the rarest mammal on Earth. Scientists went hunting around the hog farm for a colony, and they found one nearby. For a few years, they monitored the ferrets in the wild. But then the plague spread to these last ferrets, too. They had to make some tough decisions. I think a small contingency said, maybe we should just let them go, you know, because they still had not located any other wild populations. And so as far as we know, that was the last one. So do we let them go? You know, is it important to save them? Of course, the majority of the biologists said, no, we're going to do whatever it takes. They dug up the colony. At that point, there were only 18 ferrets left. The state of Wyoming started a captive breeding program. Eventually, the project got bumped to the federal level, to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They opened their own breeding centers. That's where I I am in uh, Colorado. Kimberly's at one of the centers that breeds ferrets. She walked us through all the effort that goes into that breeding process, and it is a massive task. 
before they could even begin, they had to build the center in prime ferret habitat so they could raise the ferrets properly. It's a beautiful day today on the prairie, and I'm sitting at my window and I'm looking at actually a a female pronghorn who is nursing uh, twin fawns. Kimberly is surrounded by acres and acres of land and a complex interconnected ecosystem. A very active prairie dog colony that has the pronghorn and uh, ferruginous hawks and prairie rattlesnakes and uh, swift fox. Um, The smell is rich in uh, the different grasses and and soil, you know, it has a real earthy smell. And then the wind blows quite a bit. So as the wind travels across the the grasses, it, it moves, it's almost like the ocean, you know, with waves. It's perfect black footed ferret country. And for decades, scientists there and around the country have been trying to figure out the best ferret breeding strategy. There are a lot of steps. First, the males and females are paired and bred. Then the females whelp. And uh, ferrets are born about the size of your pinky. They're white, no black mass, no black tail, no black feet, and quite helpless. We like to say that uh, ferrets are born half-baked. These baby ferrets are very carefully monitored. So the staff will come in in the morning and they don't want to contaminate the population with any type of diseases that they might bring in. So they put on their scrubs and they uh, would walk through the rooms listening to the nest boxes of the females that are due. If they hear it's like uh, meowing, they record that. They can't open the boxes too early because sometimes the females freak out and eat their young. But eventually, the staff give the kits health checks. After a couple of months, they take the moms and their kits to these special pens built outside. These are 40 by 40 miniature worlds with burrows and everything. It's like a halfway house to the real and dangerous world. Ferrets learn in these pens how to be ferrets. They learn to navigate the burrow systems. We give them a live prairie dog once a week, and the females teach them how to kill prairie dogs. Um, They do what we, for a better term, we call it the happy dance. They'll dance around, they arch their back, they'll chatter. After a month of practicing and killing prairie dogs and happy dancing, the ferrets are ready for the real thing. They're taken to a holding building and then shipped off to reintroduction sites, where Fish and Wildlife follows a whole set of steps to put them back in the wild. But even after reintroduction, the work is not done. Teams then have to survey the prairies and see how well the ferrets are doing. You drive around all night looking for black-footed ferrets. They have a, a very unique eye shine and um, it reflects backlight uh, so they can actually see at night. And black-footed ferrets have an emerald green color. And it's like two shining emerald jewels on the prairie at night. But it is a poisonous, plague-ridden world out there. Yeah, you know, um, you make all this effort to raise them, to work with partners, to get the funding. And, you know, plague is, is a challenge. The ferrets that are born in the breeding centers get vaccinated against plague. But when they have babies in the wild, the babies have no plague resistance. 
prairie dogs get the plague and they pass it on to these second-generation ferrets. And then the ferrets die all over again. So even though U.S. Fish and Wildlife goes through all these steps to raise new ferrets, they're still endangered. Teams have tried dusting prairie dog dens with insecticide to kill the fleas that give the plague to the prairie dogs, but that's inefficient and it damages the ecosystem. Drones can be sent up. They can go out and they can map a prairie dog colony. It can come back. They can load it up with the plague vaccine pellets, and it can dispense them across the landscape. These pellets are basically like vaccine M&Ms. It's cheaper than dusting burrows with insecticide. But these black-footed ferrets are still getting the plague. Domestic ferrets don't get sylvatic plague. There is innate genetic resistance to sylvatic plague. This is Beth Shapiro, a professor at UC Santa Cruz. She's written a book about de-extinction that digs into a technology called CRISPR. CRISPR is basically like scientists taking bits and pieces of different genomes and editing them or collaging them together. So if we could identify the parts of the genome that provide this resistance, we could then genetically rescue black-footed ferrets by moving the DNA from domestic ferrets that provides resistance to disease into this black-footed ferret population. So literally, you take a tiny bit of DNA from the domestic ferrets and you collage it back into the black-footed ferret DNA. And ta-da! Plague stops killing all those ferrets that we've spent so much time and effort raising. Or you could try to use CRISPR to turn on genes that are already in the black-footed ferret DNA. And that would make them resistant to plague also, and let them pass the resistance on to their kids. Which is awesome. But at a certain point, you have to ask, is it worth it? We've been trying to save the black-footed ferret for decades now. So should we be trying to use CRISPR to save it? Or should we just let it go? After the break, my producer Bird is a lot more sold on the idea that black-footed ferrets should be saved. So she tries to convince me. So Dylan. So Bird. Where are we right now? We are standing in front of the black-footed ferret exhibit here at Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. And we're looking at a black-footed ferret. Yeah, and I think it is super cute. You want to describe it? He is pretty cute. He's, he's sort of like a long kitten, very long face. And of course, his feet are, are very, very black. At the end of our reporting, I was still a little skeptical about saving the black-footed ferret. When you add up the money from charities and wildlife groups and the federal government, we spend about $3 million on these ferrets every single year. And I thought that money could be better spent. So my producer, Bird, brought me to the museum to see the ferrets we were talking about. But while we were there, we also went to visit Henry. Henry is 14 feet tall and he is majestic. Um, Yeah, so we're looking at a very large elephant in a huge room with like marble columns and arches, but honestly, the most exciting thing in it is probably the giant elephant in the middle of it. Not even probably. Love Henry. He's fantastic. Henry is great because he's huge, but also because he's something called a keystone species. Unlike the ferrets, Henry holds his entire ecosystem together. African bush elephants wander around grasslands, munching on shrubs and tiny trees. 
And that means that the grassland stays grassland. So all the animals who need the grassland to survive, your antelopes and wildebeest and zebras, all depend on the elephants. If all the species in a habitat are, are like dominoes in a row, Henry's like the starter domino. If you knock him out, a lot of other ones get knocked out too. That there's sort of a chain reaction throughout the ecosystem. Whereas the black-footed ferret, it's a domino and like every domino matters, but he's one of the last, if not the last domino in the chain. It's, it's not like the, the whole ecosystem is going to fall apart if he's gone. And we know that because he was gone for a bit. In my mind, it's a lot easier to make the case for spending millions of dollars to save a keystone species like Henry the bush elephant than to save a species like the black-footed ferret. But Kimberly Fraser pushed back on that a little. You know, it's not just saving a single species, which is, you know, sometimes how we view it. You know, we save the grizzly bear, we save the wolf. By saving the black-footed ferret because of the obligation to the prairie dog, you're kind of saving a whole ecosystem. The prairie dog doesn't need the ferret to survive, but the ferret needs the prairie dog to survive. So if the government wants to save the ferret, it has to save the prairie dog and the whole ecosystem around them. All these other associated species, again, swift fox, burrowing owl, prairie rattlesnake, ferruginous hawk, they all get brought along with the ferret by saving this one little mustelid predator. Everybody's on that ferret bus. And there's another way that all this ferret-saving work could have indirect benefits. Beth Shapiro mentioned that CRISPR could be used to help ferrets. But CRISPR is so new, there's a lot to be discovered still. And maybe when scientists poke around with CRISPR for ferrets, they'll learn something about disease resistance or genetic diversity. And that could be used to save other species. That could include keystone species, like the bush elephant or the coral. You can imagine identifying mutations that allow fish species to survive in more acidic waters and moving them between species, or identifying mutations that allow corals to survive in hotter water and moving those between species. It's almost like the space program. The goal was, and is, to send stuff into space, but we also got the CAT scanner, satellite television, and memory foam. We got kids who wanted to learn science because they saw people on the moon, or purple and blue pictures of galaxies from the Hubble telescope. Saving the ferrets could have its own set of worthwhile knock-on effects. My producer and I talked through these ideas in front of the ferret exhibit. If a ferret can get me the memory foam of animal conservation, I could be on board. <laughs> Did I actually convince you? I'm, I'm torn between two impulses, which I think are, are sort of two things like effective altruists like to think about a lot. One is... On the one hand, the whole point of effective altruism is that things that feel good aren't always efficient uses of money. And my initial reaction is that saving the black-footed ferret feels good, but when you stack it up side by side with some of the other things like fighting malaria, or even trying to help keystone species, the ferrets fall short. But on the other hand, I'm attracted to things like the knowledge that $5,000 can save a kid using malaria bed nets because it's so linear and clear. It's sort of a dollar to lives saved formula that you can work out with not a great degree of precision, but a reasonable ballpark estimate. And a lot of the world just isn't like that. A lot of the world is, 
you go to the moon and you wind up with a CAT scanner. If effective altruism doesn't take the weird quirks of the world into account, it might actually end up being less effective. So, sure. For now, at least, I'm willing to say, let's save the ferrets. Our wonderfully talented producer is Bird Pinkerton. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. We owe many thanks to Jillian Weinberger. Our engineer is Jarrett Floyd. Our music is by Chris Zabriskie and our very own Noam Hassenfeld. Thanks again to Beth Shapiro, whose book, How to Clone a Mammoth, is really excellent. And thank you to Tom Maloney for his help. Future Perfect is made possible through a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. To read more of our reporting on effective altruism, check out vox.com slash futureperfect.